Michael Waits Media. Hi, this is Michael Waits and welcome back to the Wolfcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Renu and Joseph, the founder and CEO at Luminant Analytics. I really do love the name of that company. Renu, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for having me on the show, Michael. I am doing excellent. The last time you and I talked, I think you were traveling. Is that true? Yes. Where, where were you? I was in India, oh, nice. uh, where I am originally from. Got it. And uh, I came back last Saturday to Basel, Switzerland, where I am. I've been for the past eight years. Oh, wow. That's a long time. Let's get a little bit more of your background for some context before we move into the main part of our discussion. Sure. My background is I am an economist um, or a data scientist. I did my... So the funny thing is I knew when at age 14 what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an economist. Okay, wait a second. Before we go any further. How did you know, though? Was there some sort of environmental thing around you? Like was your mom an economist or your dad was a data scientist? You know what I mean? No. Um, so, my dad, so my dad is a banker and my mother uh, is a professor in English. And so nice. education was very important in my family. Nice. And I, when I was maybe 12 or 13, I was thinking about what I want to do. And I loved history and I wanted to be an archeologist. And then I was running through my list of things and I was like, well, I have to be in dusty places and I love it, but there might not be enough money. And then I stumbled into econ. I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. No dust. This is no dust and this is both a soft but an actual science because uh, it deals with things that make people's lives better or worse that's sure. money sure and so i wanted to be an economist and i kind of just kept my focus i'm happy to say i did that and i did my i ended up doing my phd from the university of illinois at chicago in i finished it in 2000 uh defended in 2009 finished in 2010. I just love this idea of the defense of a PhD. I think most people don't understand like how difficult it is to have a doctor to have a PhD degree and understand the defense, right? Do you want to just go through that a little bit? What did you write on? Or what did you what did you yes. research? What did you write on? I'm curious. It, yes. So I um my professor was as a bit of a background. My professor was uh his name is Dr. Frank Chalupka. Okay. He is uh, for those with, who understand smoking in, in the US, there's a whole movement which went against making, which prohibited smoking. Right. Right. There's both the epidemiological evidence and there is the financial evidence. And he's he's testified in a few of the committees on why prices of cigarettes should rise to decrease tobacco consumption. And so there was a lot of work done in the US about the in the relationship between prices and cigarette smoking, but there was less of that evidence in India or in Southeast Asia. And so when I, uh, my, my master's focus was development economics, because I had an interest in how policy can change human behavior, especially in poorer countries. And so when I went to UIC, I found this great synergy between him and what I wanted to do. So my research was focused on looking at data to find that relationship between price increases and tobacco consumption. 
the use of tobacco in poorer countries is nuanced, especially in India, where it's used to curb hunger. And that's something that really? uh, a lot, yes, that's something that a lot of probably the Western world, or I didn't even, even I didn't appreciate it till I went to the US and I started reading the literature. Okay. And in India, there are uh, three forms of tobacco consumption. So there's BD, which is the unfiltered tobacco, which is fairly harmful. And then there's cigarettes, and there is the chewing tobacco, which is called gutka. Okay. And uh, people usually start with BD and they chew gutka together. That's the kind of complementary behavior. And as incomes rise, they start going into, into cigarettes. Is there a sort of a socioeconomic understanding yes. of people? In other words, if I'm walking down the street and I see somebody chewing, do I think, yes. okay, maybe not as economically yes. advanced? And then if I see smoking, yes. I think, oh, they've made it a little yes. bit. Really? Yes. 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 It's still very, very evident. And it's just uh, it's just a, a, a price thing. And it's also like the culture. Yeah, it's just so much in our culture that I don't even, I didn't even think twice about it till I actually started seeing the data. So this is interesting. Did, did you study data science as well? When you were at university, was there a thing you could do to study that? Or mm -mm. is it just part of the progress of going through the PhD and doing all the research? Yes, yeah, so the, I think the word data science has been coined fairly recently, maybe, well, as I understand, five to 10 years. My background was stats and math yeah, and then econ. Right, and so you understand, and then you... I mean, now data science has become such a thing, but it, at the end of the day, it's basically empl employing different tools and techniques so that your data can tell a story. Right, right. I mean, I think that's yeah. probably going to be the title of this, Data Can Tell a Story. Yes. Were there any sort of conclusive findings that you, that you determined when you were writing your PhD about pricing, rising prices, lowering prices, and the impact of it on tobacco usage? Uh, yes, uh, one of the things is uh, the concept of price elasticity that you increase prices and demand falls. Mm -hmm. And for cigarettes, there's a value in the developed world of minus 0 0.5. I actually found that for India among youth, it's this around the same minus 0 0.4. I remember seeing the number and just uh, it's just having that moment saying, oh my God, this holds. Right, it you works. Know, it's, it works and it was and you know getting to that number was painful i i spent one year focusing on another data set dropped that found this and this was messy so you know coming to that aha moment was just painful <laughs> <laughs> but this brings up another really interesting topic right this idea that like there are different data sets that are associated with the same topic and that essentially finding the right data is almost as important as analyzing that data is that fair Yes, yes. And it is, it is, I think it's much more important to find the data and to figure out what you want to do with the data and ask the right questions. All of that together is probably 70 to 90% of, of what really contributes data science. So you said something in passing, but I really want to point this out to people because this is something that I've learned too. Can you say that again? 70 to 80% is having the right data and asking the right questions. This yes. is so important though, right? Because you can get all this, you can accumulate all this data, but if asked the wrong questions. Yes. And then it's, I won't say it's meaningless, but let's just say it's less relevant. Is that also fair? Yes. Yes. And I think it all comes down to 
You know, if you are, and I've seen this because uh, the questions that an academic asks is different from a business asks. I think you need to be in their shoes to know why they ask the questions. There's no judgment involved. Right. Um, and then you have to elicit the right answer for that. So you can imagine an academic finding coming with that price elasticity and say Philip Morris coming up with that price elasticity. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'm not making a judgment call yes. on that either, but I think we know where <laughs> those things fall. But I think it's yeah. interesting, and I think it kind of informs what you're doing today as well, this idea of finding the right data set and then applying it in a way that makes sense, right? Maybe you want to talk a little bit about the founding of Luminant Analytics and how you moved from... I love this. A 12 or 13 year old who wanted to be an archaeologist but didn't want to be in the dust, but also made a, a career decision early thinking there's not a lot of money in that either unless you're Indiana Jones, which is fake. So fun, but fake. Yeah. <laughs> I love this idea of having a career choice when you're 14 and then yes. just going with it. Anyway, so how did you get yes. there? Yes. And so... Okay, so I finished my PhD. I did a postdoc with the Gates Foundation uh, to the University of Toronto in, in 2011. And then I realized that I had spent like 10 years doing tobacco and I wanted to do something else. <laughs> so I did a switch and I went into the world of financial services. So I worked for Moody's Analytics in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And it oh, was right. actually... <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, I, will, I will give I, you my condolences again, by the way, but please go ahead. Yes, but it was amazing because they taught me, I learned how to write and I learned how to speak to a business audience. Interesting. That, that you know, for an academic, the devil is in the details. Actually, for a business person, the devil is also in the details, but you have to present concisely so that you don't lose the attention of a decision maker who's got all of like one minute to listen to you. Right, right. Did you find that, so, did you find, sorry to interrupt you, but did you find that like the defense you had to do for the PhD, right, which is a longer process, it's not like a 15 minute process, right? There are probably like yes. six or seven, maybe 10 people sitting with you, depending on okay, where you yeah. go, right? And then they all have questions and so it could take hours to do this, right? Yeah. But did that help you later think about, I've now done some data analysis, I've gone through all those things, I've, re I've refined my analysis into this thing, when you're having a business conversation thinking, I have to defend this too? Okay, so the academics are very grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> and I say it in the, in the sweetest terms, right? And in econ, if they let you speak for more than one minute, it means, oh God, you've done something good. Right. So I, you know, I, I appreciated the fact that I could speak to an audience for 10 minutes without being cut in between. Fair enough. Um, but that made me very aware of my words and how I could impact uh, decisions. So I actually put a lot of thought into what I should tell them in terms of how it can help them. I think I drew from my experience in studying into the business, but I also, I think I was able to understand that the roles of both of them are very different, you know, because I have the ability to go into depth into one thing uh, that will always kind of hold me back a bit. I can't do it quickly. I always need to know a little bit more, but I can, I have been working at Moody's helped me zoom up and we used to have like real time coverage. So as the, like, for example, the gold prices or whatever would close at the end of the day. And I had to write a, 
um, real time in like uh, just five minutes later. And I loved it. Yeah, that's fun. I loved it because that's a lot of fun. So I learned a lot of things. I'm I'm thankful for that organization for, for letting me do that. Yeah, it's a very interesting and, place to work and sits in an interesting place in the financial services industry. Sorry, yes, go ahead. Yes, yes. So after that, I moved to Switzerland uh, to follow my spouse. And I didn't know where I would land. I just started applying for jobs. And then I found this great job in a reinsurer in Zurich. And uh, there are a few was, of them there. Uh, yes, there are a few of them there. And I, started, I was in this cool team. The goal of the team was to look at external data and make it applicable to the company's uh, costing and pricing. And they did a few things that were very smart. Um, they put together a bunch of people who did not know reinsurance. And there are actually not many people that know reinsurance because right. they wanted a new perspective. Interesting. And then they made a said, you know, we want you to materially help the business. So not just provide numbers, but work with the business. So in my three and a half years, I spoke to everyone, claims, underwriting, pricing, client services, data science, IT, um, and I had access to the C-suites because of the role I was in. So I understood how senior management took the decisions or not take the decisions. So it was really, I got a 360 view of the business uh, and I was able to understand how data science could potentially contribute. And I, uh, my key area was the US casualty business. And so I worked on the topic of commercial auto, which is close to a $50 billion business in the US. We were tasked with finding out why that line was doing very badly because it was at the beginning of the losses and they have been they, that line has been is continuing to underperform for over a decade. And uh, I, uh, I still being part of that industry, and I actually, I love it. I still don't understand why decisions can't be made, especially on the data side. And so I, I, I noticed that there's a big gap. So if you have to compare personal auto and commercial auto, personal auto is your cars, clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of, um, they, they are up to date on using and new data sets, new techniques, even though in the US it's highly regulated. Commercial auto is a bit behind in terms of their use of data and their pricing algorithms and the factors that they use for just different reasons. And so I saw the opportunity to actually challenge the pricing that's in place by using external data. So this reinsurance company clearly, based on what you said, was very progressive, right? Because Yes. There's a bias towards using internal data, the data that I have, the data that I can control, the data that I've always used. Can you just go back a little bit and just what prompted them to use external data? Because it seems very progressive to me from a reinsurer's perspective. I think there were two things. One is the company was super progressive and very intellectual. So that's, mm -hmm. that, that, that's the ethos of the company. And the second is, Contrary to what people think, reinsurers do not have a lot of data. They get only the cut of the data that the insurers want to share with them. Oh, so they had to, by necessity, they had to go external and just accumulate a yes. ton of other data. Very interesting. Go ahead. Yes. And so they were like, some of the risks that they write, they just didn't, they could do with better data. It was just simple. It was necessity. And so they said, well, then go look at what else is out there. Right. And so... I mean, I, for me, who love data and uh, I love the exploration, this was perfect. Right. I could go look at, uh, talk to people, pick up a phone and talk to people. It was great. 
I understood how I had a few ideas on how it could be done better. And so when I launched Luminant, I wanted to launch it first for insurers. What I'm what I'm doing, I think it's a great reinsurance brand as well, but I wanted it for the insurance industry because I wanted the, to help the insurers first. Did you find when you looked at that external data that you could write new pricing models that could then take away the losses that had been going on in the commercial uh, vehicle business? Do you know what I mean? Like, did, did it change things? And did, it definitely changed the pricing, yeah? Yes. So I think that once a, a book uh, or business has been written at a certain price, it becomes sure. really hard to justify the price. So then the question is, what do you do with that? Do you eventually let it, uh, you know, expire? Expire, yeah. Yeah, uh, that could be one. But then it doesn't mean that every risk in that segment you can't write. You use that data to look for profitable segments. Right. So that's one thing that I wanted to do uh, with the data. The second thing is transparency. You know, underwriters usually come to the truck drivers in this case saying, well, we just want increased prices and there is no reason. And so because I was using external data, I wanted to share to show that this, these are the trends that we see in the macroeconomic environment on the roads, on the accidents that is leading us, the insurer, to increase the price. They may still not choose to renew with an insurer who's increased the price, but one year later, if Luminant does what it's supposed to do, they're going to come back and take the price. Right, because that's going to be the price. There's a predictive yes. mechanism going on here as well. Yes. yes. Yes, yes. So interesting. Can I ask you this, though? So you're dealing with a reinsurer, but now as Luminant, you deal just with reinsurers or with insurers as well? And, and because I want to make that distinction, too, because they're very different businesses, yeah? And yes. do the insurers have more internal data than the reinsurers? And if they do, do you combine them? Is there power in combining the internal data with the external data to also adjust pricing mechanisms in different business lines? Okay, so to answer the first question, I want to first access the insurers uh, because as a startup, I want to focus. Right. But I do see a, such a strong play from the reinsurance angle, which mm -hmm. is basically saying someone who uses Luminant is a signal to the reinsurer. Go ahead. What does that mean now? It means that you are using uh, data and techniques that help assess and price risks better. So as a reinsurer who provides coverage, that's a tick mark. Got it. I understand. I understand. It's a signal to that them one. that like... Exactly. Yeah, okay. Go ahead. Go yes. ahead. Um, the second one is absolutely, I think you can blend internal and external data and um, to make better decisions. That's my understanding. But, and insurers do have a lot of internal data. And, but I think, I think at this point, the, in, the industry has to accept two things. One, Data in insurers are siloed to have heaven and back. I mean, I, I, and I am not, this is not a, you know, it, it really is not a value judgment. It's the way it is. This is how they are built, at least in Europe and the US. I think India, I'm finding out it's, it's different. And so how much ever you want to use it, it, it would, it's so hard to break that silos. So for that reason, the use of internal data is not as optimum as it should be. Okay. Second, yes, external data, most 
big companies or data science teams, and this is their their territory, right? I as a data vendor and a model vendor, I'm encroaching into sacred territory, and uh, they they just need to. I think there needs to be an acceptance that when a vendor comes in saying this is what we do, that vendor has economies of scale on that area. Right. So this this was the other question I was going to ask you. Yes. The siloing, I completely understand, right? Because you have these sort of legacy systems that were set up. So if you have line A of business, they gathered their own data. If you had line B of business, they gathered their own data. And because of the way the systems were set up before, it wasn't like they were cloud native API first and had built-in communication tools between all that data to do it. You could do that today, which maybe is why India, which started later, is probably better at this than yeah. it is in the West, yeah. meaning in Europe yeah. and in the United States, but probably not perfect. But the implication of those silos is actually pretty strong. But the second question I want yeah. to ask you is, how interesting have you found this sales cycle, right? Where when you were sitting inside of a reinsurer and they said, go external, get some data, bring it back to us, and let's have an intellectual conversation about how this is going to fix what we're doing. That was, that was your mandate. So that was relatively, I'm putting it in quotes, easy. But as an external vendor coming in and going, I think I have a better way. Like, what is that, what is that process like? That process is very painful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But it's interesting no, as no. well, isn't it? Sorry, yes. go ahead. Oh, God, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, I say it's painful. Because you see how, you know, you see the organizations within an insurer that you are touching and that you are challenging, right? And right. as an entrepreneur and as someone who really cares about efficiency, I believe several processes have to be automated. And it has to be done, otherwise this industry will struggle. So I am pretty relentless about talking about what we do and how we can make an impact, even though it may rub a lot of long people the wrong way right and but it's long it's because you have you need to have your champions in each organization that believe in you will vouch for you it is complete stakeholder management and it's timing yeah it really is timing do you remember so i don't believe in epiphany in any in any way shape or form not in and you mentioned earlier when you were talking about all this work you were doing on your PhD, when you finally understood, and this is why I know it's not an epiphany, because it wasn't like one day you woke up and said, I got it. It was work and work and failure and work and read data sets and asking more questions. And then you're like, ah, now I see this thing. When you get that on the sales side, right, when you finally convince somebody in an external, right, in a, in a potential client, they're like, oh, I see this now. Do you have the same feeling? Do you know what I mean? First of all, it's different because it's business, but you know what I mean? Do you have the same feeling like they got it? Because once they get it, they can't unget it. Yeah, they can't unsee it, no? Yes. I think making someone pay for what you produce is hard. Yeah, please. Right? It's so you hard. know that. It is so hard. So I think that on that thing, um, I feel like I need like a series of I get it till I can breathe. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Right? It is your champion has to write, has to advocate, you, the team has to buy in. Then the task that they give you has to be something that you can shine. And the result has to substantially augment what internal teams do. So there are so many things that have to fall in place right. for them to buy into what you what you do. 
And I think, I mean, and this is where uh, analytics um, startups differ from an MGA or a distribution startup, because for a distribution startup, they, their goal is to get revenue. Yeah, easy. It's, it's actually much easier to explain. Yes. You don't target these people. I can get you to those people. Here, I just got you yes. 10 of those people. Start paying me for the next exactly. 10. Easy. Yes. Yes. And analytics is real behavioral change within an organization. Sure. And so that is just, it takes a lot of time. And there, I think the only thing that works is success in one one company um, and good reputation that gets you to the next aha moment in the next company. So that's why I say it's painful, it's frustrating, but it's very rewarding. Extremely. I mean, look, how long have you been working on Luminant? Um, I quit my job in 2017. Okay. Okay, so four years and a bit, let's call it. Yeah. So you're halfway yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I'm halfway there, but you know, the way I, because I'm such an optimist, I'm a terrible optimist. No, it's great. The way I think is that the first two, three years is just, you just get knocked down. Like every day you wake up every day to get knocked down. Yeah. It's just That's no. what you do. No. Yeah. It's a no and a no for all kinds of ridiculous reasons. And then as it happens in the pandemic, you just get no, no, no. Oh, we don't know what we're doing. The whole world doesn't know what they're doing. Right. And then you reflect Yes. Um, and you're forced to reflect. So now. I'm less willing to accept a no. I want to have my step jumps because I yeah. think I've paid my my part of my flesh to, to where I am. But you make a really good point. And I think this is true for most startups and that they don't go like this, yes. right? It's not up and to the right. It's sideways, which yes. feels like forever. And then you get a step yes. change. Yes. And then you almost, unless you do something badly, which you won't do, you almost never go back down, but you don't go up yet. You just go sideways again. You're like, oh, sideways yes. again? Why am I doing this? Yes. yes. And then you make another step change. And then once you make your second or your third step change, then you realize, okay, this is a step change business. Yes. And all of them are, to be fair. And then you realize, okay, what do I need to do to get to the next step as opposed to how can I go up and to the right? Because that's not going to happen yes. until way later, no. right? No, no, no. And I think that sometimes I wish that uh, at least for B2B uh, insurance uh, financial projections. I hope, like I wish we could convince investors that that's what, that's how the projections need to look like. Yeah. Not this, not the hockey stick because no. the hockey stick is just doesn't work it's in nonsense. the insurance world. Yeah, it's nonsense. Nothing grows like that, by the way. So the reason why I made this joke to you a little bit out of context why I said you're halfway there is because I have this philosophy that everybody's an overnight success 10 years later. And that's maybe when the hockey stick comes. But in between that time and, and, and zero, it's really just a bunch of step changes. And I think if you can affect those step changes, then you're being successful. Yes. Right. And yes. And go ahead. And the no, well, you have to have uh, faith that there will be a step change. Yes. Um, even when you don't see it. And you kind of, once you are somewhere there, immediately immediately you need to work on the next step change. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I got asked to do something in my business, let's just say last year that I'd never done before. Someone said, hey, you're good at this. Can you do this as well? And I just said, yes. It scared me because it is a step change. And I just thought, can I, I can do this. Can I really? I can do it. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm definitely going to do it because it is a step change. And I know that if I do that, I'm not yeah. going back down to the next level, to the previous level. Not going to happen.
I agree. You said when you said investors don't get this, have you tried to raise money? Yes. So in March of 2020, I had a client for Otto. And meanwhile, I also started a platform for life insurance fraud analytics uh, because I realized that the life insurance industry in the US is generally a bit behind PNC. And so there was a demand for some of the analytic services and I started building out a fraud platform. And so I had two products, started with one, had two. I was going to get a round of funding from a Connecticut-based VC when COVID hit. And um, there were disruptions in what my client would have, clients would have wanted from Luminant. And since we were in a pandemic, I decided to not take the money and um, actually just wait it out. So, and I'm very happy that I actually did it because it gave me a chance to reflect on the market and what I want to do and how I want to do things. How big is your team? So I have my, my US team is, uh, my core team is really three people. I have an advisor and two part of my team, marketing and the BD. Uh, My data scientists are contract. They are, I know them well, but they're all over the world. And my development team, my software team is in, in Switzerland. And uh, it's with them that I've started my second venture. What's that? That's called the Vertido Center for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. And what's the goal there? The goal is that we want to become the end-to-end partner for businesses, medium and large, across industries in effective implementation of data science projects. And I started this with uh, two basic uh, goals in mind. The first is that I had I understood that the insurance sales cycle would be long. Right. And I was I would want to use the learnings from the center to understand which other industries I could expand into so that when Luminant refocuses, we have one more industry. The second is that being part of the insurance data science stream, I understood a lot of the mistakes that companies did and I wanted to help them navigate that journey and not lose faith in data science. Right. And so the center, one of the big focuses, so the center has three offerings. We have classes, we have consulting, and we have implementation. Right. So the classes are meant for different parts of the organization to understand what data science is really. Uh, why does it fail? What do you need to invest in so that you don't fail? What's an ROI? Do you need to reskill? Do you need to upskill? So it's bringing back the topic of data science to several industries and then to insurance. So that's the my second venture and uh, I have focused on that in the latter half of this year. It is still a focus for me this year. I mean, Luminant is of course my first venture and I'm very passionate about it, but sometimes it it has to be the right timing and the right partnership. Absolutely. And I'm willing to wait for that, yeah. Have you found that operating inside the data science and the artificial intelligence space is as diverse as you'd like it to be? You know what I mean? Like when you walk in the door as a woman, do you feel like there's a different perception of you than there would be as if you were a man? I think in the beginning, in the first few years, I think I had that feeling. But then do they just figure out you're just so darn smart that it doesn't make a difference? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And I think 
most importantly, I accepted the fact that I'm not smart that I don't care. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, I want to think it's my world as it is the world of a 42 year old white male. Yeah. You know, and I think we probably it's a, there's a lot of like a, a generational influence on insurance. You know, it's still older mindset sometimes it's not a bad thing it's just the way it is in industry takes a lot of time to change understood so we have the the newbies trying to change things and i think it's it is tougher when it's a woman but i think that just being a startup is just tough it's just hard all the way around right it is it just is yes when you look at the insurance landscape right so there are a few things there are a few parts here a bunch of moving parts right so you have the reinsurers you have the insurers you have the mgas then you have this whole slew of global insure techs as well. Are they yeah. also potential clients of yours? Do you know what I mean? Where you can go to them and say, hey, I've already done some work on the pricing side. Maybe you should consider this too. Absolutely. And I think that when you have an MGA, let's say in the commercial auto space, um, that tries to write new policies, they usually take the established pricing forms and they work off that. Right. That's, that's industry standard. That's what's done. But at one point, they know and I know that they can actually use their own data. And that's one of the things Luminant wants to help them, which is not just sell the product to them, but also even conceptually make them think about what they need to do to be set up. So my kind of vision for this is that perhaps the change agent in the industry is not the billion dollar carrier but it's probably the $100 million InsurTech. Right. And it's tough because startups are startups and they have so many things that that uh, come to them. And so you have to really... So I'm always, when I look at startups uh, to work with, I look at the founders, I look at their value proposition, I look at the mindset towards the data, I look at how well they know insurance or they want to know insurance. Right. Yeah. Okay. Look, I think this has been a really, really fabulous and interesting conversation. I really want to thank you for doing this, Dr. Renu and Joseph, the founder and CEO at Luminant Analytics and Vertido <laughs> Center for Data Science and Artificial Intelligence. Thanks for bringing that up as well. This was awesome. Thank you so much. My absolute pleasure, Michael. I uh, hope to see you soon. <laughs>